turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses uh, verses 24 through 27. Uh, We're going to go ahead and read all the way through 32 to give the grand context. I invite you to stand to honor the word of God. As we read Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 21, I'm going to start all the way back up in verse 21. I know that's not where that starts, but I want to give the full context as we read through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. When I was in junior high, before I was a believer, I got invited to a church down the street from where I lived, just a a United Methodist church, and they had a Sunday school class, and I just started going to that with my friends. I don't remember much. I do think the Sunday school teacher was a believer. Uh, I didn't know what that meant at the time. It's just looking back on all of that. But he did a study once uh, and took some of the uh, us teenagers, young teenagers, through the book of Revelation. And I remember he was just talking about various aspects of the book of Revelation. By the way, he was also my history teacher in my junior high class. But uh, I remember him talking about the book of Revelation and being terrified at these things. It didn't make any sense to me except that there was all this wrath and punishment and weird creatures. And I found myself quite fearful, and I actually remember having some strange dreams during those few weeks when we were talking about it. As a believer now, I read the book of Revelation, and that book doesn't bother me uh, at all. I recognize what God in his sovereignty is doing, and I know on which side of the equation I am because of my faith in Jesus Christ. But if you've been around solid biblical teaching at all, then you have most likely been informed of passages of Scripture, whether you think it's the book of Revelation, but there are other passages in Scripture that have been deemed the most terrifying words that you might ever hear. What are some of the most terrifying words that we might ever find in Scripture? And one of them, which usually heads the list, is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And Jesus is speaking to a group of people who think that they're following God, who say that they're doing things in the name of God and for God. And then Jesus utters these words, beginning in verse 21. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Terrifying. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, that great and final day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a truly terrifying thought that you might be going to church week after week after week. And on that great day, you stand before him and you say, Lord, did I not go to church? Did I not sing songs in your name? And did I not pray in the name of Jesus and Jesus to look at you and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. This would be a recognition that while you may make a profession, your life never revealed that Jesus was truly the Lord of your life. You never truly looked to him as your Savior. There are some other passages. There's one in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. And we read what happens to those who simply disregard the person and work of Jesus Christ in these Verses. These would be those who have been exposed again to all of the wonders of Christ. And it says, beginning in verse 29, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. And then it ends with this statement. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the context is to be judged. The context is to receive the full fury of the wrath of God. To think that you would be in the predicament of having the hands of the living God on you in judgment. Of course, for all who are in Christ, for all who have trusted in Christ, for all who have believed in Christ, we read the great statements of Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we read in Matthew 5.1, or excuse me, Romans 5.1, that we have peace with God. Terrifying words, and yet I submit to you that before us in our text are some of the most equally terrifying words we could ever read. These are words that reveal to us how the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by the way they strive to live, as if there is no God and in ways that are utterly contrary to him. We live in a complete culture that's seeking to live in ways contrary to the living God. I was listening to a, a talk radio show yesterday by a man who professes to be a believer, says some very good things, but his son is gay. And he was reconciling that, that it's okay, that God doesn't condemn that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. What kind of gymnastics do you have to do with the word of God to justify that? Well, he's not hurting anybody, and he's committed to his partner, and so it's okay. No, because it is taking what you think. It is worshiping the creature rather than the creator and saying, my way and what I feel is good and right surpasses what my creator has ordained me to be, bearing the image of God. Though these people live in utterly contrary ways to God, so many tend to see the wrath of God against uh, uh, others in only in, in terms of its climax. We get all the way to the book of Revelation. We're like, there it is. Now they're getting their just desserts. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 of those just desserts, if you would say it in those terms. 
Revelation 20, beginning verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Terrifying words. This is the wrath of God that so many fear. This is the wrath of God that they're thinking, if I can just ignore it, maybe when I get to that day, I'll, 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 I'll talk my way out of it. There are a couple of things, though, that are true in light of Revelation 20. First, while this may appear to be the climax of God's wrath against unrepentant sinners, the reality is it is simply the start of the climax of the wrath of God. It's not as if that moment they experienced the full wrath of God and now it's over with. The moment that they experience this, they enter into what? An eternity of nothing but the experience of the wrath of God that their sins deserve because they would not bow the knee to Christ because they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Second, while this expression of the wrath of God to come is yet future here in Revelation 20, it does not indicate that there are not already other equally terrifying expressions of the wrath of God. And that brings us to another set of verses that are among the scariest and most terrifying that I have read in Scripture. They are found in the context of Romans 1, verses 24 through 32. And Paul sees fit to state this three times, stated in four little words, God gave them. You do not want to be in the category in which God gives you over. Paradokin altos otheos. Handed over they by God. Literally given, given them over given over them by the one God. God gave them over, the NASB. God gave them up, the ESV. God delivered them over, the Christian Standard Version. And as we'll come to see, this giving them over was not giving them over to something wonderful, not something delightful, not something soul-fulfilling. It is a giving them over to that which is the most vile, most shameful, most unnatural, most perverse, most unworthy, and the most degrading, and ultimately the eternally damning of attitudes and actions ever conjured up by a group of people. Before us in verses 24 through 32 are the results, the present day results, what we can see in the present of those who because of the rejection of the sovereign creator God who made them are now given over, they're given over to themselves, they're given over to their lust, they're given over to their degrading passions. Why? So that they will delve themselves deeper and deeper into the sin of which they themselves approve of and adore. What we read in these verses is the present day expression of the wrath of God. You can think about fire and brimstone and all of that, but we have right before our eyes what the wrath of God looks like, and we'll spend the next couple of weeks enjoying the view. Because of the scope and depth of verses 24, 26, and 28, notice that's where those three phrases, God gave them over, are found. Let us take some time to deal with them properly. 
it is in these three verses that we learn how God responds to the unrighteousness of men who reject what may be clearly known about God through what has been made. We read that in verse 20. What we find in these three verses is the result of the reaction of what comes forth from God's holy being towards suppressors of the truth, unrighteous, unrepentant sinners, revealing to us why, why it is that each and every person so desperately needs to be rescued, delivered from the wrath of God. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to deliver people from this. But they've got to believe. As we have already noted in verses 24 through 32, these present-day manifestations of the wrath of God are revealed against sinners who reject him. If you are rejecting Christ and rejecting God, then you are already experiencing the wrath of God. C.S. Lewis once quipped that there are two kinds of people in the world. He said, there are those who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. If you reject God, God will say, your will be done. But in the end, you will not like where it leads you. Humanity exists, as we noted last week, in a state of, human, of, of depravity, of being as bad off as they can possibly be, meaning that, that they believe that by living in unrighteousness, they are somehow truly living. I, I've never understood the mentality of saying, uh, you know, I can't wait until the weekend. I'm going to drink all the drinks and I'm going to do all the drugs and I'm going to wake up Monday morning feeling sick and miserable. And say somehow, I'm living the high life. Well, I guess they were high, but. Such people will not have God to be their God. And so his present judgment against them is that he ceases to restrain them. What is going on right now, interestingly enough, is even though we can say maybe some of us have been around, it seems like things are worse now than they were 20 years ago or worse now than they were 40 years ago. What we're seeing is that God's common grace, which is a restraint of sin, is just being more and more removed so that God is ceasing to hold back the catastrophic consequences of sin and its devastating damnations. If you ask me, this is as being as bad off as you can possibly be. When God says, do you want to sin? Have at it. Those are terrifying words. God says, go in, go all in, and experience all the sin you desire, and experience to its fullness. Start mutilating yourself. Stop. Start murdering. Let the world be filled with violence. Note the last time the world was filled with such violence, what I did to it. I flooded it. And I've told you what I'll do the next time that I've had enough. Not only do our sins invite the wrath of God, but because we so embrace those sins, God says, go all in to your own demise. Do you not see how this represents some of the most terrifying words as it re represents a complete, completely tragic condition? When God let go of an individual, when God lets go of an individual who chooses to refuse him and his ways, such a person will, by definition, sink deeper and deeper into and more wickedness and waywardness of life, a condition that will not only bring great eternal harm to himself, but guess what? He takes a whole host of other people with him. To be given over to the depth of the sinful heart leaves a person completely helpless against just how depraved he may become. And when this happens, great spiritual and moral problems will begin to compound, which is exactly what we are experiencing in our culture today. We live in a culture that believes living life without God, regulated by ethical boundaries, is actually the mark 
of a progressive society. Let's throw off the fetters. Let's not have the moral restraints. Let's not have the ethical concerns from a Judeo-Christian point of view, or we should just say from a biblical point of view. But the reality is that the more progressive our culture becomes, and you're seeing it before your eyes, you're actually seeing the wrath of God revealed against a people. You're actually seeing the evidence of God abandoning a a people, of giving them over to the very sickness that degenerates humanity and what it is supposed to be. And if you think I'm driving this point in uh, point too hard, Paul insists that what I'm saying is so. I didn't say it. Paul did. And in a sense, Paul had an even greater authority than himself, the Holy Spirit. As notice, as, as I'm so fond of saying, if a biblical author says something once, that's all that we need. If we read that God gave them over to the, the lustful passions of their desires, that would be enough to go, wow, that's intense. But Paul doesn't say it just once. He doesn't say it just twice. With the equality, with the for, uh, force of Isaiah's statement, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Paul emphasizes God gave them over. God gave them over. Did you hear it? God gave them over. Are you paying attention? The more we see the depravity of the human heart manifested through the multitude of lustful perversions, these are the marks of God's displeasure And they demonstrate that the judgment is this. Such wickedness will be rewarded by God giving them over to those things more and more. We've seen it, the rapid pace, 2016, when same-sex marriage was somehow deemed uh, a right under the Constitution, something that humanity has never recognized But where have we come since 2016? We have had this beeline, this jet tour all the way to where we find ourselves today where men are identifying themselves as women and we have mutilation of children. It wasn't enough to kill them in the womb. We now mutilate them after they get out. It is... It is as if God is declaring to all sinners who reject the light of his general revelation, that which may be known about God from within the human heart, as sinful as it is, as well as what may be known from creation itself, God is saying, since you will not have me as God, I will let you go down the path of your own choosing, and it will be a path of destruction. It will be a path that leads to the damnation of your soul. Put another way, it's as if God is saying you desire to live in the lies of your sins as suppressors of the truth, then have at them and have at them with the full ramifications as they that they will have on your life. Paradokin autos otheos, God gave them over. Let me pause here to make an important application. While we are clearly told in verses 24, 26, and 28 that God gives them over to their sinful lifestyles, this does not mean that God has totally given up on them. While we who are believers can see the pathway of destruction that their decadence is leading them, such should encourage us to preach the gospel more and more. We need to say when we see the wickedness on our TV sets, when we hear it proclaimed by some kind of political person, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to deliver that person from the wrath of God. If we do not believe that, we don't understand the gospel. And if we think people are so far beyond being saved... We don't understand the gospel. So while these people are in a desperately sick situation, they are as bad off as they can possibly be. You 
who profess Christ have the remedy. Preach the gospel. It should encourage us then that they might be saved and brought out of this sinful, immoral state. It is, is this God's will? Is it God's will that we would just give up on the culture? No, we preach the gospel. Keep in mind our previous teaching of, Rome, uh, uh, of Romans and consider now with me the words of the apostle to those in Corinth, those who were very much living in light of Romans 1. Corinth was a decadent place, even as what we're seeing in our own culture and society. But notice that God didn't give up on the Corinthians. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, or do, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor, the, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are some very terrifying words if you're involved in all of that. But look at verse 11. Such were some of you. Some of you had been given over to all of that. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God, you were washed and redeemed from that culture. We need to not be ashamed of the gospel that will save people from the, their wickedness to which God is presently giving them over. There is a deliverance from the cycle of being given over to sin. Only and through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this blessing of deliverance along with the command to call others to be reconciled, to be made right with God so as not to experience what? His wrath. And it comes through faith and obedience to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, very familiar words to most of us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you've now trusted in Christ, if you believe in Christ that he gave himself up for you, then you are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely... That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, here's our call. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be brought out of this wicked culture. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of God, the rightness, the perfection, the wonder of God in Christ. Jesus Christ is the propitiation that is the one who alone satisfies the wrath of God by his own death on the cross. And all who believe that Christ made that satisfying sacrifice for them, Paul says, you are a new creature. We don't worship the creature. We worship the creator. New creatures worship the creator. The old creature, along with its propensity not only to sin, but its propensity to to go deeper and deeper into sin is gone. Is it gone in you? That's one of the sure marks of being a Christian. These are made right with God. These are no longer enemies of God. These are now children of God. These now have the hope of the assurance of eternal life, not because of anything in themselves, but because of one thing, the perfect, perfect righteousness of Christ as it's been graciously granted to them as their own. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the gospel to deliver people from the present manifestations of the wrath of God. But until such a person believes in Christ, until he 
trust in Christ, until he longs to and looks for Christ, a person is given over to the sins that he seeks in himself. God allows sinners to reap what they sow. Galatians 6, 7 says that very thing. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The harsh reality of these three verses, verses 24, 26, and 28, paradokan autos atheos, God gave them over, is that while the ungodly will mock God, believing that God does not judge sin, believing that because they go on living and sinning, and it doesn't even appear like there's any kind of judgment, they fail to realize that they're actually being judged. They're actually being given over to more and more decadence of sin. That is the definition of being given over to sin. In these remaining verses of Romans 1, Paul reveals the terrifying consequences that fall upon those who refuse to acknowledge what they know to be true about the character of God. This is what this is what it looks like to have a futile mind. This is what it looks like to have a darkened heart. This is what it looks like to live a life of radical corruption. The present-day manifestations of God's wrath as revealed in our text is understood by theologians as God's divine or judicial abandonment. God's divine or judicial abandonment. To be found in such a state of divine abandonment. The God who created you says, go. That ought to be a concern for every human heart. Lord, may that not be me. In Matthew 6, we find Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. This is often called the Lord's Prayer, but it's probably better described as the disciples' prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus included this petition. Have you heard this petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, and it should be translated, the evil one. In other words, Jesus tells them to pray for protection from the wiles and schemes of the devil, as well as from the wicked whims of our own sinful hearts. In essence, they were and we are to pray that God the Father would never give us over to our sins. The most terrifying thing imaginable is for a person to experience divine abandonment. When God lets you go your sinful way now, understand this, in eternity you will never be abandoned, but will only experience the wrath of God. Well, this concludes our introduction to Romans 1, 24 through 32. Now for the message. Remember that we have outlined Romans 1, 15 through 32 as follows. We've seen the readiness of Paul to preach the gospel in verse 15, the realities of the gospel in verse 16, that's the power of God to save, the remedy of the gospel, it brings about the righteousness of God, the reality of God's wrath in verse 18, we consider the reasons for God's wrath, and now we look at the results of God's wrath. This final point, verses 24 through 32, break down neatly into three points for us, the first of which we will consider in our time remaining, but let me show you where we are headed. Here are the results of God's wrath. You'll be given over to self-deception, given over to sexual deviancy, and finally given over to seeping, sweeping degeneracy. Those are the three areas in which we will consider. In these remaining verses of Romans 1, Paul speaks or reveals the terrifying consequences that fall upon people who refuse to acknowledge what they know to be true about God. Let us consider that first result then given over to self-deception, given over to self-deception. We read uh, in verse 24, I think we're on the next slide, Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the cre creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
In these two verses, 24 and 25, Paul sets out to explain both the, the what God is giving people over to as well as the why he's giving them over to such things. The word therefore is a link that all that we've just considered is now linked to this. Here's the outcome. Here are the results for those who suppress the truth. So let us first look at the what. What is it that God gives sinners over to? We read that God gives these people over. God gives them over or hands them over in a judicial sense like the judge handing the guilty one over now to the bailiff to be taken away. The verb give over actually is an interesting word that Paul uses because it has roots in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, this verb is used to describe how God promised to give Israel's enemies into her hands for the conquest of the promised land during the days of Joshua. We read in Exodus 23:31, the Lord makes this declaration. He said, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver. Translation, I will give them over. I will hand them over, the inhabitants of the land, into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. By the way, I would just say you could look at a verse like this, given all of the issues with Hamas and uh, driving Israel out. This is God's promise made a long time ago to give them the land. And if you want to take a look at the, the, the breadth of the land given in that description, you may. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you. Again, he will give them or hand them over and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Do you see this connection? They're being given over to what? To their destruction. Ironically, however, God uses the same verb that we just read here to describe how God will give or hand over his people to Israel's, uh, his people, Israel, into the hands of their enemy because of their own sin. And so we read in Leviticus 26, this is a prophecy, by the way. They hadn't even gotten into the land. And they're, they're being told this prophecy in Leviticus 26, verse 21. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, does that sound like a suppressor of the truth? I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, <laughs> you keep going, then I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall, here it is, you shall be delivered, you shall be given over, you shall be handed over into your enemies' hands. After Israel's defeat at Ai, have you read that one recently? Joshua makes this plea to the Lord. We read in Joshua 7, 7, this is Joshua, and he says, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to give them over, to hand them over into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? There's always this connection of being given over to destruction. If only we had been willing to dwell among, beyond the Jordan. The idea of Israel being given over by God to her enemies as a result of her sin is stated repeatedly in the book of Judges, a couple of verses. Judges 2.14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them over into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. Judges 6, verses 1 and verse 13, then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them over into the hands of Midian for seven years. 
later, then Gideon said to them, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has what? Abandoned us and given us over into the hand of the Midians. In verse 24 of Romans 1, Paul pulls all of those word pictures. And he states that God has given or handed people over. If you read the text, it says technically what it should read is that God has given them over to their impurity. If you read the text correctly, it says in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And the noun impurity is a compound word, and it literally means in the Greek without purity or without cleanness. Such impurity then would speak of anything that is impure, anything that is immoral. If you can think it up, it's impure. It is immoral. That's what makes one's life filthy or dirty. God gives suppressors of the truth over to their desire to live dirty lives. Now, this is not to say that God compels people to sin. It's not God making them sin. They are already sinning, and God says, let me show you what the consequences of your choices to sin where they lead you. We read in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He's not the one doing that. He's just saying, go do your own thing. God does not cause people to lust. He does not cause people to sin. He does not cause people to do evil. This is not what it means for God to hand them over to impurity. Rather, the point is that God hands such suppressors of the truth over to impurity, not so that God may cause them to be impure. Rather, he hands them over to, we should say, further impurity, because they're already impure, already immersed in their sins, already engrossed in their passions, already infatuated by their lust because of their fallen hearts. And if I haven't said it enough, I'll say this one more time, the consequence of embracing sin, and this would be a principle that's true even for Christians, the consequence of embracing sin to such a degree would be, this, would be God to say, you want to sin? Then have at it. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequence. This is an experiencing of God's present judgment against sin. Men, are you wrapped up in pornography? Because if you are, you'll find that it gets harder and harder to let go of that. Why? Because you're being given over to it. You need to ask another man's help. Do you have lustful thoughts? And you think it's just up in here, it's not going to affect anything, you've got to hold, get, get a hold of that. Do you have a problem telling the truth? Are you known to tell what little white lies or just fudge the truth so that you don't look bad because of your pride? Get a hold of that because God can give, that, give you over to more and more such thinking. When God does it to a culture, it's God's judgment against sin. We read at the end of verse 24 the result. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. The verb dishonored means to treat with indignity or to insult. It speaks of treating something disgracefully uh, or intentionally degrading. Our culture is filled with notions that are propped up to sound like they're helpful, to sound like they're honorable things, and yet they do nothing but destroy or degrade humanity. You know one of the biggest catchphrases today that actually destroys and degrades humanity? My body, my choice. Such people fail to see that it's but a cover to do what? Murder. I don't like using the word abortion. It's a word that's trying to hide what it really is. 
we are murdering human beings in the womb. And yet we prop it up like this is a health issue. This is a woman's right issue. It's an issue of human rights, and a human deserves to live. God created humanity to live. The ideal of honoring a marriage bed, meaning this. What does it mean to honor the marriage bed? It means to not engage in sexual relations outside of marriage, both before and during the marriage. But those are regarded by our culture as antiquated, as non-progressive limitations meant to somehow stifle human flourishing. Do you know what stifles human flourishing? The culture in which we live. We don't even have enough people in the United States to, to keep our population up. So now what do the progressives say? Open up the borders so that we can have more people come in because we won't support what makes life flourish. What makes life flourish? Living according to God's standards, husbands and wives, having children according to what God has said from the beginning. Go and have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. And then to mutilate these God-designed bodies by choice for perverse desires. All such things graphically depict the very idea of what it means to dishonor the body. And when we start dishonoring the body, when we're killing 60 million babies, when we're now mutilating children for perverse reasons, even if we're mutilating adults, what are we doing? We're dishonoring these wonderful bodies that God has created created uh, for us. The point is that suppressors of the truth treat their bodies beneath their God-given and intended design. This means that they are robbing themselves as well as others of true human dignity. It stands to reason that if they do not honor or glorify God, as we read in verse 21, that God's wrath is revealed against them by allowing them to dishonor themselves according to their own depraved dispositions. We have said it before and we'll say it again. The punishment for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness is that God abandons them to further unrighteous living. God allows them to run with their sins, which are in them by nature as sinners, because this is their desire. And so God allows this to their own great hurt, morally, mentally, emotionally, culturally, spiritually. That's the what. Now let's look at the why. Why are they given over? They are given over to their own lustful impurity in verse 25. Why, why do they want this? Why do they do this? Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In spite of what many may think, every single person on the face of the earth is actually a worshiper. Everyone worships something while we are told what while we are told here that many will not worship the true and living god paul still identifies them as worshipers doesn't he they're not worshiping the one true god but they're worshiping something he says and why is this because as image bearers of god we are instinctively and intrinsically religious we want to worship something. We need to worship something. We are supposed to worship the one true creator God. Suppressors of the truth, however, it says here, they exchanged. That is to say they have definitively by their own choice, the word exchange means they've swapped out or replaced the truth of God. They said, I don't like this truth and I'm going to insert this other statement in here which happens to be a false statement but i'm going to swap it out they swapped out the truth that god has revealed all that god has revealed to people about himself as the creator as we've considered in verse 23 and they've inserted what what have they inserted for the truth well what is there if there, you don't have the truth you have a lie that's all you have you have a falsehood the Greek text literally reads that they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. 
And that made me think, what is the lie? It's a, a definitive lie. And in context, it would seem that Paul, the lie that Paul has in mind is the lie of idolatry, that I can worship something else other than God and be okay. Paul actually makes this connection with impurity and sexual immorality as seen in verse 24 with this idea of idolatry. Beloved, when a people do not worship the God of the Bible, the God who, as it says at the end of, ver- uh, of this verse, is um, to be praised forever or eternally, such a people, Paul says, will not evolve, they will not progress, they will devolve into sexual immorality and increasingly deviant behavior to degrees and forms which were previously unimaginable. The point is we will always become what we worship. Whatever captures our hearts will always begin to be reflected in our lives. I think about the sexual revolution. I didn't know what was going on. I was born in the late 60s, and so it started in the 60s. So I grew up in the middle of all of that, a little bit, you know, blind to what was going on, but now I can look back and see what was taking place. And that revolution, that sexual revolution that has progressed to what we are experiencing today and what we might call the roaring 20s of our culture is nothing but good old-fashioned idolatry. It is every bit as much uh, idolatrous as what we find uh, the people of Moab in worshiping Molech. It's all the same. Such people worship, they revere, they, they serve, they devote themselves wholly, it says in verse 25, to the creature. This is the lie, to the creature rather or in the place of the creator. And Paul's making a play on words here in the text using the idea of the creature and the creator. This is to emphasize the wickedness of the exchange. We might say the incredible foolishness of the exchange that happens when God judges a people by abandoning them to the cesspool of their own sins. Beloved, when God leaves a people in such a condition, there is no level too low for them to sink to. If you think it's bad now, If we continue on this trajectory, we will see worse. It will get worse. And Paul is going to painstakingly reveal this reality in the verses that follow. You heard me rattle off. Paul loves lists. It's hard to take a breath in the middle of that list that's so long at the end of this chapter. And we're going to look at all those and how they are reflected in our culture even today. Why does God abandon people? Why does he abandon cultures to engage themselves in more and more depraved expressions of sin? Because they idolize themselves. When we think about it, I was um, listening to some commentary. And the big thing today, a couple of weeks or a couple of next week, There's going to be a spectacle. The spectacle is not just the Super Bowl. One of the big side stories, which may actually become even more important of the story than the Super Bowl, is this whole romance between Taylor Swift and uh, Travis Kelsey. And the reason why this is an interesting thing to consider is because so many people think, well, Taylor Swift, she's, she's an attractive woman. She's not you know, weirded out with all these things. And so this much, she's a normal person. She's not. She's a narcissistic person. This is all about focusing upon them. And we have people that are just going to watch this and embrace this and think this is the best thing ever. And I'm telling you, it is not the best thing. She idolizes herself. Kelsey idolizes himself. And guess who the guys want to be like? Kelsey. And guess who the girls want to be like? Taylor Swift. Who should we long to be like? Jesus. We cannot worship the creature rather than the creator. 
We will worship ourselves and we'll do it vicariously through others if we have to. Beloved, one of the most terrifying things that can happen to sinners is to be allowed to continue sinning without divine restraint. And that's what we see is the revelation of God's wrath. In the book of Revelation, there is given a description of the last judgment that is set forth by God. We read in Revelation 22, verse 11. This is the end. This is at the very end. You kind of have to put this in context. I'll try to put it in context for you. Listen to what it says. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What is it saying? There's going to come a day when the sides are done. The wrath of God will be fully revealed, and those who practiced their filthiness and their wrongness, that's what they'll be doing for all eternity and be punished for it. And when we are finally glorified, we will always practice righteousness and holiness. In the end, beloved, God gives people over to what they desire. So I just ask you, what do you desire? You have one choice or a multitude of choices. Do you desire Jesus and Jesus alone? If not, then there's a whole multitude of other desires that you can pursue. And God will give you over to them unless you repent. God will abandon people to their own sinful impulses and he removes his restraints again as if to say, you want to sin? Go ahead and sin to the cross. This is the wrath of God revealed. This is God's dispensing of his just judgment when he allows the sinner to do what the sinner desires to do. Such will not only invite the future further wrath of God to be revealed in the last day with the consequences of forever experience the wrath of God, but it will have its impact upon you in this moment. And the only remedy is faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is our substitute, the one who stood in our place if we believe in him. Why do we believe he stood in my place? We'll say to bear my sins, that's true, but take it further. We say we're saved from our sins, and I understand there's a theological correctness in this, but it doesn't go far enough. Jesus Christ stood in our place, not simply to bear our sins, but to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to rescue those caught up in the wrath of God, and such were some of you. Such may still be some of you. Would you believe on Christ and Christ alone? Receive the righteousness of God that is found in Christ and Christ alone. The righteousness that makes you right with God so that you will not suffer his wrath. May we desire Christ and that righteousness so that in the last day we will not be seen before God with a righteousness of our own, but with the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness that we still practice and a holiness we still adore. But it all begins by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I will ask you, do you believe? Have you believed? Does your life reflect that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the rescuer? from the wrath of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the immensity of this text reminding us how much you despise sin and how much we fallen human beings love sin. We pray, Father God, that we would see your hatred of sin in such a light that it would cause us to not desire it any longer, but to press forward to look to Christ and desire him and him alone. Father God, as we prepare ourselves to come to the table, 
may we first recognize that we must come to Jesus. Whatever it is that we need to bring before you today, we pray that we would come in the name of Christ for forgiveness of sin. Come to Christ for the hurts that are on our hearts. Come to Christ for whatever it is that is heavy on our hearts. And then to be able to recognize that Christ bore in his body our sins so that we might be reconciled to God, that we might no longer be enemies, that we might no longer be those who receive God's wrath. May we come unto Jesus with